everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for July 11th, 2023. We're just uh, basically one week away from San Diego Comic-Con. If you're there, hit me up. Make sure you follow me on social media. Uh, if you're not there, I'm going to be live streaming uh, or live tweeting, I should say, some panels. I'm going to be talking to creators. I'm going to be taking a lot of pictures. So uh, it's a good time. One of these days, we'll get Rocky out there so he can meet uh, a lot of these creators and go to a lot of the parties. It's it, It's interesting. Um, last year was the first year it came back and there were some growing pains. There were some adjustments to be made because of the pandemic. Um, I feel like I got less press invites than previous years, more than I did for WonderCon this year with the writer's strike. It's been really strange. Um, and so I didn't know what to expect. Uh, there's going to be plenty to cover, especially comic wise still. Um, but <laughs> My after show hours is what has actually filled up first. So I've been getting more party invites than press invites. So it's a great problem to have. I mean, don't get me wrong. Most of these parties are open bar. So I just got to remember to pace myself. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in training for the past couple of weeks. I've been having a drink or two every day, which is not my normal. That was what I did in my 20s, but trying to build up my tolerance. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's going to be a fun time. Be sure you're following the comic source, uh, like I said, on social media so you can um, – Check it out. So uh, that being said, we're going to dive into this week's DC books. Night Terrors is the big thing ongoing. There still are a few non-Night Terrors titles to kind of hold us over. Uh, I would say overall, I was really disappointed with the first week of Night Terrors, which is saying something, right? Because I had zero expectations. Didn't think it was going to be very good. And it didn't even meet those very, very low expectations I had. Uh, first week was just terrible, to be honest. This week's an improvement. For, for Night Terrors. I was pretty impressed. Uh, well, I, I think just to kind of talk about it overall, the art in this second round, the second week of Night Terrors books was a lot better. And I talked a lot about the art the first time. I didn't like the art in most of the, the first issues. Um, and I, I get what DC is trying to do. You're trying to capture the mood of horror. The colors are going to be muted. They're going to be darker. It's not going to be bright, vibrant colors. The art's going to be a little more muddy. That's just the nature of art for a horror book. But I, I really felt the art was subpar because you look at this week's books, it's still that moody type of coloring and the art still is a little more moody. It's not quite as sharp. It's not the bright color. It's not traditional comic book art. But you look at something like the art on Green Lantern, right? Eduardo Panseca, same artist that's doing the regular Green Lantern um, book, same artist that's worked with Jeremy Adams recently on his Flash run. It's still his sharp pencils, but it has a different feel because of the little more, like I said, visceral, the colors are a little darker, but it still works. It's still great art. So I think that for me, was just a failure the first week on art. The art quality just wasn't there. Cause I, as much as I still am not a fan of doing a horror event in the middle of summer here, I, I didn't read these books and go, man, I hate this. You know, I was just like, okay, story might not be for me, but at least it's, they're good well-made comics. I can't, just can't say the same about that first week. I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I was, I was slightly hap. I was slightly in a better mood with the first week than you were. I thought it was, I had low expectations, but it was slightly higher than my low expectations. And I will say though, that the, that night terrors first blood 
was not bad, but I this second week is better. Night Night Terror's number one. All these names are so similar, it's kind of confusing, but it's actually Night Terror's first bite was last week. Night Terror's number one is this week, and it actually is a much better comic book, and it should have been the comic that started everything off, quite frankly. It was just a, just really a lot of strategic and narrative errors in the way this uh, this event started off. But I agree with you that there's a, the, the art is... The art on all the, the covers are fantastic, and and I, I I've I have tried to display some of those for those watching on the YouTube channel. But for those those of you who are listening on uh, the Comic Source podcast, by all means, Google the, the covers of these because I mean, hey, I, I broke down, I became a hypocrite, I bitch about covers, but as I said, I, did, I I've done some cover buys here in this event just because I love the covers, and uh, particularly I love the Midnight Variants, and I hope to get most of those. But uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, you know. I'm just going to be interesting to hear your thoughts as we go through these night terrors, and uh, of course, we got some non-night terror uh, comics as well, which, I, which frankly, I liked even more. But. Yeah, and again, uh, I, so many covers. <laughs> what I've taken to doing when I when we get these press previews, I go through, I try to guess who the artist is on the cover, um, see how how good my skills are. Uh, but man, a lot of these newer ones, it's like I, I'm seeing. Art, I, I was like, okay, I don't know who did this art. Can't can't figure it out. I go and I look at the credits, and I'm like, well, it's because I've never heard of this person ever before. But you're right; those midnight variants, the red and black ones, they're all by Dustin Wynn, and they're uh, they're fantastic. So let's go ahead and dive in. Night Terrors uh, number one, Dead on Arrival, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Giuseppe Camancoli, Stefano Nisi, and Casper Wingard. Colors by Frank Martin and Wingard. Letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, as Rocky said, you could almost think of uh, Night Terror's First Blood as as like a prelude, and then this is really the first issue of the the Spine series, if you will, or the main series that all these other uh, titles are going to tie into. So if you're you're looking to experience Night Terror, but not looking to break the bank, and don't want to read, you know, about every individual series, this is the one you should probably read. We saw in that First Blood series that Dead Man basically took over Batman. Everybody else in the DCU, for the most part, is asleep. Batman's awake because Dead Man has possessed him. So you get some context. You get some history from Dead Man. He's narrating. Uh, he's almost breaking the fourth wall, so to speak. He confronts the villain of Night Terrors, this insomnia. We were told in First Blood that he was a god. He's the god of nightmares. He's looking for the Nightmare Stone, which is this artifact that helps control dreams and what have you. Uh, that's not exactly the case, right? We see Dead Man here trying to possess um, insomnia and realizing that everything he said is basically a bunch of BS. He was an inmate at Arkham Tower. Um, he somehow in the he had some mental health issues. Somehow during the Lazarus Rain event, uh, he was infected and gain these powers we did see i don't remember if it was in one of the lazarus reigns one shots i think it was yeah it i was, think yeah. it was comics where we saw this um this cell door and we saw lazarus rain like penetrating it and it was a hint of what's to come that must have been this guy's cell um and so he gained these powers to be able to step into people's nightmares and dead man's like you're not a god you're just some dude and he repossesses Batman, even though he knows, because when he leaves Batman's body, but Batman basically collapses and he's asleep. So he animates Batman again. He leaves. Um, he's going to go try to find clues about who this guy is and, and what have you. 
Um, and he says, yeah, I know Batman would be mad if uh, he knew I was possessing his body, but I couldn't leave his body behind. I need to go and help, you know, solve this. Uh, and the other thing that's great as he like leaps out of this building, he says, uh, say what you want about Batman, but the dude works out. He's easily the most fit person I've ever possessed. So I love that line. Um, so how and what exactly dead man is going to do to try to, um, figure out and stop uh, insomnia. We're not really sure other than to say he's gone and recruited the help of the hero who's probably most associated with working with dreams. Uh, and that's Sandman, not, not Sandman Morpheus, but Sandman Wesley Dodds. And if you're thinking, no, he couldn't have Wesley Dodds is dead. Well, like I said, dead man is possessing Batman's body. Batman still, of course, because he's Batman still has some Lazarus resin. So dead man goes and gets a Lazarus resin, uses it on Wesley Dodds. It's not really enough to fully bring Wesley back. Um, but yeah, zombie Sandman is what we're told in the teaser to be continued in the brave and the bizarre zombie Sandman and Batman slash dead man team up. Cause it's Batman's body, dead man's spirit controlling it teamed up with a uh, undead Wesley Dodds. And so I gotta say as much as I haven't been looking forward to this series, this event, and as much as I didn't care much for the first week, this is fun. This is fun. A zombie Sandman, an undead Wesley, uh, Wesley Dodds teamed up with a Batman with Dead Man's body. Or, uh, sorry, Dead Man with Batman's body. That's fun. That's fun. And there were some great lines. Uh, actually, kudos to the writers of this week's books because there were every book had at least one kind of laugh out loud line um, that, that was pretty amusing. So, yeah, I thought this was great. Um, the art, again, much stronger. I'm not familiar with Stefano Nessi, but Casper Wingard, very talented artist. Uh, Giuseppe Camicola, also very talented. So uh, it didn't bother me that there were three different artists in this. I didn't really notice it. They did a good job of uh, merging their styles together. So, yeah, overall, I was pretty impressed. I, I got to agree with you, Rocky. This was the book to start off with, not that First Blood debacle. Um, so, anyway, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, and in fact, it wasn't. It was actually that free comic book day debacle as well, which I didn't think yeah. was I didn't was particularly good. And last week's first blood was not. It was okay, but this was by far. Uh, this is the event, and you know this. I, I, I feel like Jeff. I feel like Joshua Williamson is channeling some aspect of Jeff Johns in in doing this. But this should have been this should this should have been the free comic book day issue, and it should have started off. Like this, and every single issue of this event should have some revelation like this. Zombie Sandman is so cool. I'm just thinking, look at every hero of the DC universe or even villain that has some connection to the dream world in some capacity or way and resurrect them, bring them back. That's kind of cool. This is the excitement, and I'm really curious to know. I'll be honest, it's been so long since I read a Wesley Dodds JSA story. I mean, there was a reference to JSA classified number eight and some editorial notes in this comic. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just glad to see Wesley Dodds. Uh, Wesley Dodd's back. I, I'm interested to get to know him again, even as a zombie. This is cool stuff. This was what I like to see. We get some more information about insomnia here. We we were introduced to the, the character that would become insomnia in a completely forgettable Lazarus Planet uh, story involving the Huntress. In fact, I remember you and I criticized the story because it was completely pointless. It was Huntress. It was a story involving the Huntress going back into Arkham Asylum, which we thought had already been cleaned out and there shouldn't be any, any patients in Arkham Asylum anymore because that storyline had all but gone. But there were still 
patients in Arkham Asylum and Lazarus Rain leaked into the asylum. It was a pointless story with a huntress and, you know, beating up a bunch of Arkham Asylum. Was it Arkham Asylum or Arkham Tower? Arkham Arkham Tower. Tower. Sorry, Arkham Tower. Yeah. (laughs) It all blends in after a while. But yeah, it's Arkham Tower. And and uh, and yeah, there's there's this pa- random patient there that we saw in the end get infected with Lazarus rain and uh, you know whoop de doo and it ends up this in the, this particular character managed to obtain the superpower of being able to hide and to spy on people's dreams and this person became insomnia. Now, how was it that insomnia feels that he was betrayed by the heroes of Batman and what have you? What did insomnia see in the dreams of people that he was spying on them? I don't know. But it's worth noting that Joshua Williamson makes a point of drawing a similarity between dead man and insomnia, namely that both of them, in a sense, sort of spy on other people's dreams. It's also interesting to note that Dead Man always traditionally always was able to possess the bodies of living people, not necessarily dead people. Uh, and Dead Man here, when he tries to possess insomnia, he 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 actually gets he. That's where we discover insomnia's origin. But oddly enough, unlike most people, Dead Man can't seem to access any of insomnia's happier memories because insomnia is keeping them hidden. So there's some mysteries there that we don't know. We also know that the Nightmare Stone that insomnia is looking for. Uh, presumably to give him some some power over the waking world, that he's got to find the Nightmare Stone as soon as possible because Insomnia's power over the waking world, he loses more and more of his power in the waking world the longer he goes without finding the Nightmare Stone. We know that the Nightmare Stone was created by a sacrifice, perhaps related to Wesley Dodds. Uh, uh, we, we know that... Uh, Dr. Destiny used to possess the stone. John D. ultimately stole it and... Uh, and became afraid of it and sort of hid it away somewhere. And there is, uh, interestingly enough, after Deadman fights Insomnia here, Insomnia then sends his sleepless nights out. To, and we, we are told that specifically the, the sleepless nights search for the Nightmare Stone in the waking world. And it's in the dreams that Insomnia searches for the Nightmare Stone in the... In the uh, in the dream worlds where all the uh, heroes and villains are basically falling asleep. I was a little confused because Insomnia tells the sleepless nights, he gives them an order to kill all those who are still awake in the waking world, which I find surprising because what if you kill the person in whose dream the nightmare stone is located? Isn't that a bad thing? Uh, So I thought that maybe was a little of a bit of a plot error, but maybe it's not. But presumably he thinks that the Nightmare Stone is somewhere in the minds of one of the heroes. Um, again, I like, I like you know, th- this is a really great introductory issue. You get to know San- Dead Man again. We, we once again get a repeat of Dead Man's Origins. We got that in the first in night in first blood. We got that in uh, in the free comic book edition. We get it yet again here. There's a lot of repetition here. I can't help but to feel if I'm being critical, if I'm being constructively critical, this is a lot of information is repeated that we got twice before already, and that's 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 a that's I think unnecessary if they'd have done this. Williamson had planned this a little bit better. But the story is more intriguing. I, I would recommend that people, uh, f- you know, only need to read probably, I'm guessing, Night Terrors issues one through four. I'm, I think there's four issues of that. And, and don't read anything else because you'll probably get the gist of it in these four issues. And uh, once again, the criticism of all the Night, Night Terrors books this week, all part one, which will encompass Green Lantern, Flash, and I'm... 
uh, Shazam, uh, is that, uh, and Robin, Tim Drake Robin with, uh, with, uh, uh, Tim Drake Robin with, um, Red Hood, there, none of them are looking for the Nightmare Stone. So no one's actually looking for the Nightmare Stones for all these corollary issues with all these heroes. Uh, Insomnia is in all of them in some different form or capacity, but he's not actually looking for the Nightmare Stone. So the entire premise of this story as set forth so far in the free comic book day issue, First Blood, and in this first issue of Night Terrors, as interesting as it potentially is, is completely squandered in the collateral issues because it just focuses on the nightmares of the heroes, which, you know, frankly... Uh, I think is um, unfortunate because I'm more interested in the story. If the story is worth telling, then uh, then then the, I want that story to unfold as opposed to just tell me what the nightmares are of the heroes, which frankly, as a longtime reader, I already know what they are. I'm not a new reader and I question how many new readers are coming on board for this, but that's me being a little bit cynical, but I'm still, I'm enjoying this more this week than I did last week, which is a, which is a good thing. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Um, you wonder, I mean, Ravager, the first week Ravager felt like the most important of the ancillary series. Like she, her, her series, her second issue may have the most to do with the stone for this one. I'd say it's green lantern for this week, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, because those two seem to be more aware than the others, uh, that they're, that they're sleeping. When it comes to covers, the main cover by Yvonne Reese, we're talking about covers is absolutely fantastic. There's a neon version of that. I don't know if it's a ratio or not, but I, we don't have the preview. Uh, they didn't send us the neon one, but man, I'm not buying any of these, but I might be tempted to check out that neon one. But when it comes to covers, you have a, a favorite. Is it the Matina there? Is it the Doc Shaner? Uh, Doc Shaner's a back. That's Alex Maleev. And then the Matina is the, the dead man where his face is like all melted. Yeah. That's the friend. Boy, it's tough. I really like the Matina one with the dead man is really good, but I also like the black. It looks like an almost black and white one with, uh, I'm not sure who that is with dead man. Batman. Yeah. Batman. But because he's possessed by dead man, it's kind of like a mashup between. Yeah. That's why I like it because, yeah. yeah, Cause it actually is. It's, it's relevant to what's going on in the story. It's actually related to the content of the story, which I think is, is so crucial. It's, you know, how often do I bitch about that, that I want covers that are some way related to the actual story. And these covers actually are in different capacities. And that's what I like about it. Yeah. There's two versions of the, the Alex Maleev, the black and white one is the a one in 50 variant. The one that has colors, the, the B cover. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. The first of the ancillary series, we'll talk about Night Terror Shazam number one, uh, written by Mark Wade. Roger Cruz handles the pencils. Wellington Diaz handles the inks. Arif Prianto on colors, with Troy Petrie doing letters. I do like that it's Mark Wade, the regular writer of Shazam, that's doing this. The Roger Cruz pencils uh, are very strong. I, I feel, and, and the colors from Arif Prianto as well. I feel like of all the, the books this week, this is the one that has the most sort of traditional comic art and the colors that are most closely um, similar to what you would see in just a regular Shazam book. So even though this is tied into the Night Terrors event, uh, I like it because it's Mark Wade who's doing the regular Shazam book. So he's adding, even though he's telling a Night Terror story, he is getting a chance to do some character work and add a little context that he can pick up the threads of later on in his uh, in his regular Shazam book. But it focuses on Mary Marvel her nightmare being that that Shazam has gone bad. It's interesting to see Shazam, the Billy Batson Shazam in here because he 
very much looks like Black Adam, right? Because he's a, a nightmare version of himself. So his costume is black and gold, kind of like uh, Black Adam's is, as opposed to the red and gold that you normally see. Um, again, there are some hints here about perhaps what might be to come in the regular Shazam book, uh, because in that book now, um, the the other members of the Shazam family, Pedro, Eugene, Darla, uh, Freddie, they, they don't have access to the Shazam powers. They don't have access to the power of Shazam right now. Um, and so it's a departure from what Jeff Johns had done in the past. So is this a hint that that could be changing? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, don't see sleepless nights here, or do we? Which again, that, that's a, just a fan. I didn't. You mentioned them uh, from this regular first issue. I didn't. That's such a just a fantastic name, right? Like <clears throat> we know this is night terrors. That's a play on it because it's night with a K, and then sleepless nights, as in oh, I can't go to sleep. I have insomnia. There we go again. But it's his his knights, his messengers, his uh, whatever you want to call him, his army. You know the fact that he calls them sleepless nights. Interesting play on words. Uh, but anyway, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed uh, Mary Marvel. Again, it's a lot of character work for her. If you're not familiar with who Mary Marvel is, but you're curious about her, this is actually a great book to pick up because it, Mark Wade gets to the core of who the character is. She's somebody who just by her nature wants to take care of people. She wants it, especially her family. Her family is very important to her. So, of course, her nightmare would be that she's unable to protect them. They're in danger. Billy's betraying her. So to your other point, Rocky, about yeah, we sort of know that this would be the nightmare of, of, you know, or the greatest fear, if you will, of these heroes, because we know these heroes so well, but somebody who doesn't, uh, you're going to get a good feel in this issue of what, uh, what Mary Marvel would fear. And again, the Roger Cruz pencil is very strong. I think the last time we saw Roger Cruz art was on the uh, Josh Robin series. Uh, and his art here is fantastic. Great storytelling, interesting visuals. He gets a chance to do a lot of fun stuff. Cause again, it is Mary's nightmare, right? So, uh, Things like driving off of cliffs and uh, getting into a, a taxi where the floor of the taxi is like a little pool where you can soak your feet while the taxi's taking you to where you go. Maybe that's more of a dream for some people than a nightmare. Uh, but it's an art's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. So uh, I, I thought this was a particularly good issue this week and no idea where it's going uh, because, again, I, I have a feeling that um, – that Mary's going to be crucial to the story uh, going forward. So we'll see. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I actually like what Mark Wade does here. He does look, I, I really do think that every single writer who is, who is involved in these types of events, particularly these types of ridiculously predictable plot lines, I think you're handed a, you're handed a bunch of lemons and you, you know, the best you can do is hope you made some lemonade and that uh, the readers are actually enjoy it. Uh, because I, I think this is such a challenge to long time uh, for long time readers to enjoy because you know, enlighten me. Tell me what I don't know about Batman. Tell me what I don't already know about Green Lantern in terms of what he fears. Or now tell me something I don't know. That's a challenge for a writer, for us long-time readers. But now Mary Marvel, I don't pretend to be an expert on her, but Mark Wade does manage to tell a decent story here. And it's fun story. And we also learned a little bit about Mary Marvel's new powers because we know Mary Marvel does have a new, new patron goddesses and uh, they're Amazon goddesses and uh, the... The, the M in Shazam for the Amazon God is Minerva. And it's revealed here for the first time, I believe, that it's speculated that 
uh, Mary Marvel gets some clairvoyant powers uh, from Minerva. So that's so so Minerva's wisdom gives some gift of clairvoyance to Mary Marvel, and it's that gift of clairvoyance that might help Mary Marvel defeat insomnia. Probably in part two. This is just part one, but I like what Mark Wade does here. This Mark Wade exemplifies what what hopefully all the all these stories together will will do for new readers that you can come on board and read about these heroes and know what their fears are. That's a good way of getting to know them, especially if you're not, you know, I mean, even Batman, if you haven't read Batman in 15, 20 years, I mean, you could probably guess, but you know, there's some details. Devil's always in the details, but I like that Mary Marvel here, she fears losing her family. She fears losing all her, her orphan brothers and sisters, and she fears failing them. And and that that really is played up here to to great great effect. I like the fact that she that Black Adam is 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 in here. It's Black Adam is the one, the image of Black Adam, or it's actually pardon me, it's actually Billy Batson, in the wearing a Black Adam's outfit. It's actually Shazam. It's it's Captain Marvel in Black Adam's outfit that talks to her in the dream and talks about how she's going to fail the fail uh, Darla, Eugene, Pedro, and Freddie, and they blow up in the house and and. It's, it's just horrible. And it's interesting that Captain Marvel is wearing Black Adam's outfit here. And that's, this is all in Mary's dream. And I couldn't help but wonder as, a lo- as, a, as somebody as a longtime reader, I, I, I hearken back to the JSA series where Mary Marvel was actually kind of an underling of, of Black Adam's for a while. There, there's, some, there's some great JSA stories where Mary Marvel wears the black outfit with the, with the, black, uh, with the black Mary Marvel outfit. She looks all sexy and stuff. It, it sort of harkened back to there. And, and so I, I got some good memories, good Pyrian fanboy <laughs> memories of, of that storyline. And I like this. Uh, and I, I like the art. Roger Cruz's art is, was really good. William uh, w- Wellington uh, Diaz on the colors great job and I, I was entertained and I'm really curious to see where this goes and in particular I'd like to see some further revelations can we learn more about maybe how Mary Marvel's powers are different because it's something that that DC I hope explores if Billy Batson has he's got his own set of gods we know Black Adam has his own set of Egyptian gods now and we know Mary Marvel has her Amazonian gods. Who's to say that the powers of all of Captain Marvel, Shazam, and Black Adam, they don't have to be the same anymore. There they can be significant differences between the two. And the hint at Mary Marvel having clairvoyance, hopefully that's just not in the dream, but in reality, I think just gives, it, it tells me that I'm, I might get something out of this story uh, other than just an interesting tale. We might actually get some actual character uh, evolution. Favorite cover for this issue? Ah, uh, favorite color for this issue. Well, uh, man, I'm going to have to go with the, the the bleeding Shazam one. I don't know who drew it. The It, it looks like the it's, it looks like Captain Marvel, but the red is bleeding off his costume. I don't know who that artist is. Hayden Sherman. Hayden Sherman. Yeah, yeah that, that's my favorite. What about yourself? I got to go with the Dan Mora, although Jerry Ordway classic when drawing uh, – Shazam always and the Freddie Williams Jr. one with the town on fire with the Shazam symbol are both cool too. But yeah, I got to go with the Dan Mora. Uh, just fantastic. Because yeah. like I said, in the book, uh, in in the interiors, there it is possible to but just glance at it to think it's Black Adam and not Shazam, like an evil version of Shazam. When you look at the cover because of the way it's colored, how uh, yeah. Billy is sort of you know gray with the purple eyes, it looks more yeah. like Billy but an evil nightmare version. So yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that. 
Uh, all right, up next we have Night Terror's Green Lantern number one. This is from regular Green Lantern scribe uh, Jeremy Adams. As I mentioned earlier, Eduardo Panseca uh, handles the pencils, Julio Ferrer on inks, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Dave Sharp. Um, this one ties in really well to the regular series in terms of the last issue of the regular series that we had, issue two, ended with uh, Hal and Carol Ferris, Carol Ferris's fiance, all on a plane, uh, and then all of a sudden the the pilots go, oh, no, there's an emergency. Um, what are these nightmares? For? Or they don't call them nightmares, but what are these monsters? What are these things flying in the sky with us? And then this picks right up from there. So uh, what were your thoughts on this? Uh, well, once again, the covers are fantastic. And uh, uh, Perillo has a great cover for cover A. And uh, I'm not even sure who does cover B. <laughs> uh, forgive me. Maybe you can mention it. But I, the covers are fantastic. Uh, Cover B looks like Derek Robertson from, uh, from yeah. the Boys. Yeah, fame. good stuff. Yeah, no, it's 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 really it's really good, and I even like the Midnight Variant covers quite nicely. I take that back. Derek Robertson does the um, he's he's the one that did the um, an Estro one. Estro yeah. one, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a good one too. Yeah, just just really great covers here. Um, no, no surprises here. Uh, I should say Mike Diodato. Mike Diodato does a great cover as well uh, with para- with Green Hell Jordan. With I think that's supposed to be Parallax in the background there. That looks that looks amazing. Yep. But uh, this story is uh, this is actually when I think back to my conversation that uh, uh, Trevor Dark Knight Nation Trevor Linkevich and I had at the Calgary Expo with uh, Jeremy Adams. All the stuff that he was talking to us in terms of hinting and and sort of dropping some uh, dropping some innuendos is played out in this issue, and that's why I just had a smile on my face reading it because Jeremy Adams did indeed does indeed have the attitude that. When he was given the homework assignment of, you know, this is, uh, you know, night terrors, you, you got to, you know, come up with something that Hell Jordan fears. It's like, come on, it's Hell Jordan. Nothing. This guy, is, he's a man without fear, for God's sakes. He's, he's a Green Lantern. What does he fear? And what I really liked about this, this is Green Lantern, Doorway to Death. This, this basically, last issue ended. It interrupted Jeremy Adams' Green Lantern run, but it, it you know, they're, they're attacked by these sleepless night zombies, I guess, the Insomnia's army. And right away... This issue starts off with Hal Jordan. He confronts, all of a sudden, he's at his father's funeral. You know, he's at his father's funeral. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you can tell it's, you can tell by the voice that Jeremy Adams is giving a young Hal, or I guess Hal, that, you know, he he, he knows where he's at. Hal always has his state of mind. Hal never really falls for it. He never really becomes fearful at any point. He's surprised and he's shocked. And he's taken aback even, and he, and he, you know even when this monster comes out of of, of of his father's coffin, and he he initially reacts and runs away, but at the end of the day, you know he he runs into to Carol Ferris, and all of a sudden it's like we're getting a his origin again, where he gets into a test test ship, he's talking to Carol Ferris, and she's giving him shit for, for not showing up on time, all the classic sort of Hal Jordan, Carol Ferris uh, conversations, and he ends up, and the rocket ship ends up getting pulled away, just like his origin is, and he ends up in front of Ab and Sir. In many ways, this is a, a very predictable, Jeremy Adams has really taken Hal Jordan through sort of his, we're getting the Colson's version of certain, of the high points of, of Hal Jordan's life. 
his father's funeral, him becoming Green Lantern, his relationship with Carol Ferris, all those formative events, and all in a way to try to make, to lead to the fact that Abin Sir thinks that Hell Jordan is a failure and that, you know, uh, he's he's going to amount to nothing and that in, in this in his nightmare, Albin Sir lures Hal Jordan to the to the to the ship just to take Hal Jordan's to you know to take his energy to drain him so that he can become alive and Hal Jordan can be rejected and that Hal Jordan ultimately will be left alone because one of the things that plays out with Hal Jordan is because Hal Jordan's always been in space and, and this even played out in in Grant Morrison's uh, Green Lantern as well. Hal Jordan is very much he might be a Top Gun maverick. But like Top Gun Maverick, he's alone. Maybe he gets laid a lot by different space species and uh, maybe he's trans or space sexual or whatever the word is, pansexual, as it was going around there. But the reality is, is that I think that uh, this is, I think Jeremy Adams just wrote Hal Jordan right here. His fear is being alone because what does he have if... uh, if if Carol Ferris isn't around and he doesn't have and he doesn't have the green, what is he without the ring? What is Hal Jordan without the ring? And that ultimately is is what what happens. He's he's confronts his fear uh, when Adams when the nightmare version of Adam Sir takes him on, and then the Guardians are right there rejecting him as uh, Green Lantern of Sector twenty eight fourteen, and uh, you know. Uh, again, by this time, though, the moment he sees – it's almost like when, when Hal Jordan, the moment that scene begins when he sees the Guardians, the Guardians of Oa, he's always had a combative relationship with the Guardians of Oa. And then Hal Jordan's willpower really starts to manifest itself as uh, as the story progressive and it really comes full throttle when the Guardians show up. And then at the end, I mean that was probably Insomnia's biggest, biggest mistake because when it, when one of the Guardians turns into what I'm assuming is a version of Insomnia, they even Insomnia even even admits and says, you know, what, you're you, you've out of all the people on the planet, you've been the best at this. You've handled this fear the best. So there's a hell of a compliment uh, that is given to Hal Jordan here, which uh, which I think is completely appropriate, and um, that's what I like. You know, Hal Jordan, he handles it well. And then, of course, the issue ends with with Parallax showing up and Hal Jordan showing no fear, diving right into attack Parallax. And that's kind of what I, I like it. I like it. Was there was there anything new here? Was it saying anything new about Hal Jordan? No. But what I like about it was that Jeremy Adams is saying, look, OK, maybe this is a big event. But is this a, that big event in Hal Jordan's life? I'm thinking I'm thinking not. No. Hell Jordan has been through this. He's done that. He hasn't forgotten. He's got the willpower to do it. This is a guy that willed into existence his own Green Lantern ring. He can take on Parallax, the embodiment of fear in the galaxy. He can sure as hell do it again in the form of a dream. And that's why I liked it. It reminded me why why Hell Jordan is is a Top Gun Maverick cool kick-ass character and I thought that uh, I thought that Adams did a great job with this and the the art as well uh, Eduardo uh, Panzico on the art is fantastic uh, Julio Ferreira uh, did the inks Louis Guerrero the colorist Dave Le- uh, Dave Sharp the letterer everything came together uh, really amazing on this and uh, I really like the backup too but uh, what are your thoughts on the main story yeah you kind of said it all I don't really have much to add I mean you know time and again insomnia is trying to show Hal Jordan's something that's going to scare him, you know, and he's time and again, he fails, you know, all these moments, like you said, uh, seminal moments, important moments, moments in the the life of Hal Jordan going back to when he was a child, 
uh, and say, you know, you know, this was a moment of fear. No, not really. Uh, it might have been a, a momentous moment. It might have been a, a moment that stands out in Hal Jordan's mind. Um, and there may have been twinges of fear, but he was always, always able to overcome that with the willpower that is his superpower. So uh, not a surprise that Insomniac has to keep, you know, changing the channel, as it were, on whatever nightmare or whatever uh, idea he thinks that Hal's Jordan is going to uh, overcome or be scared of. Because every time he overcomes, no matter what it is, no matter seeing his father's coffin, being selected as a Green Lantern uh, because of Abin Sur's fatal uh, wreck, crash, what have you. Um, yeah, he, he overcomes. He, he doesn't freeze up. He doesn't give up. He finds a way to fight through. So, yeah, good stuff from Adams, and I agree with you on the art. Uh, absolutely fantastic. The uh, the how, uh, the how backup uh, with Sinestro, like you mentioned, uh, very interesting as well. You know, what would Sinestro fear? So it's written by Alex Segura, Mario Fox, uh, Fokio, I think, or Fokillo. Uh, it's F-O-C-C-I-L-L-O. I would think it's Fakilo or Fakio. Fakilo, uh, yeah. Yeah, Pasado Ra does the colors and then Dave Sharp on letters. What what, what would uh, we say Sinestro fears? Well, Sinestro fears being powerless, having no power, um, being nothing, not even being recognized. And so it's an interesting trip through uh, his nightmare, um, getting beat up just by some guy that he accidentally bumps into on the street. And the guy, you know, kind of gives him a look and idiot and Sinestro immediately being Sinestro turns around fist raised as he's going to, you know, use the power of his ring. Uh, how dare you? You know, he's going to do something bad. This guy, he doesn't have a ring. He doesn't have any power. Uh, and then the guy basically punches him, knocks him out in one punch. Uh, so, yeah, that's what Sinestro fears. Again, it's not this is not new ground. We're not treading anything new here. So you kind of wonder. What was the point of this? I kind of rather would have had more Hal Jordan. Um, but I like Sinestro, so, and the art's pretty fantastic. But to have eight pages of this um, when it's clear within the first, you know, two pages what Sinestro fears, and it makes perfect sense. He fears being powerless, being inconsequential, not being able to affect things. Um, yeah, I don't know where, where it goes from here. So uh, we are reminded in the story of kind of the current status quo of Sinestro. That to me was a little more useful than, than you know, being shown that Sinestro fears having no power, no influence, uh, being a nobody. Um, because I had sort of forgotten. We saw Sinestro in the first issue of Jeremy Adams' Green Lantern. We know he's on Earth. He doesn't have his power ring. He's sitting around drinking in a bar. Um, but yeah, I forgot that he went through the whole thing or he was on the, um, the Injustice League with Lex Luthor, got powered up by what Luthor was doing and then into the Dark Crisis event, being powered up even more and then losing it all. And so, yeah, like where is he? You know, it's Sinestro. You know, he's a iconic DC villain. He'll be back. He'll have a power ring. He'll have access to the Yellow Lantern. Uh, at some point, but how we're going to get from where he is now to there. I'm interested to see what Jeremy Adams is going to do. Uh, because again, we're reminded of where Sinestro is and it, this isn't Adams even writing this. This is Alex Segura, but we know from the first couple issues of Jeremy Adams, Green Lantern run that Sinestro is going to be in there in some shape or form, which makes sense. I mean, when you talk about Sinestro, we know he's uh, an arch villain for the lanterns and for Hal Jordan specifically. Um, so, uh, Good stuff. Art was great. Color work was great. So 
Um, just I question how necessary it was, but I did enjoy it. What do you think? Well, I thought it was interesting that uh, that the final uh, in the final page of the Sinestro backup, Sinestro confronts a multi-headed version of himself uh, with that, and every version of himself of himself has a all the uh, the seven heads have a third eye, and even the hands, even even this multi-handed and multi-headed, multi-limbed Sinestro has a third eye and even an eyeball in the middle of, of the hand. And I'm and I'm wondering what that means. And I'm wondering if an additional fear that Sinestro has is becoming almost becoming an omniscient, uh, all powerful, and indifferent, just like the Guardians. Because this is. This yes, this is my own head cannon here. But I look at this image of this multi-headed Sinestro, and this is in this in this is in Sinestro's nightmare. So Sinestro must fear this version of himself because remember what Insomnia told Batman that he told Batman he corrected Batman saying Batman I'm I'm not giving you your fears you're the one that's creating these fears I just have the ability to to make you put create your fears to life and so we know that Sinestro's nightmare appears to involve himself and this is a version of himself that is still a Green Lantern and and is multi-headed and is almost godlike and that's very very curious and and uh, I'm curious what Alice Segura the who's the writer here because it's not PKJ who's writing the the back uh, as I, you know, I guess wrongly believed it was at first. I'm curious to what, uh, what part two of this is going to say for Sinestro and what this has to do with his nightmare. So, so the, the whole issue sort of intrigues me and I'm actually finding myself oddly curious as to more of how the Sinestro story is going to end because I have a fair, I have a sneaking suspicion. I know how the Green Lantern one's going to end. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was pretty good. So the next one is we're on. Uh, yeah, Night Terror's Robin. Robin. Which, yeah. Yeah. One of the weaker ones of the week, I'd say. Written by Kenny Porter, Miguel Mendoca on art, Adriana Lucas on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, the art's fantastic. I'm a big fan of Miguel Mendoca. Um, but the story, I've, I mean, from little things like why does Jason Todd refer to. Tim Drake as Drake. I've never heard him call Tim Tim Drake Drake. He does it throughout the story. Uh, he would call him Robin. He would call him Tim. I don't know why he's calling him Drake. Um, the Nightmares, again, this is not anything new. Red Hood Nightmare, of course, is going to have to do with the Joker and a crowbar. Um, and Tim is all about not being able to save his dad. And they're both subjected to those things. Over and over and over and over and over. They're not able to defeat them, so they're going to have to come up with a plan. Uh, that's basically it. That's the whole story. They're sucked into a nightmare, um, and they're going to have to try to find a way to, to work together because they're both unable to overcome these uh, respective nightmares on their own. So, again, it's not treading new ground. Not much happens in the issue. Nothing happens in terms of... Um, the overall story. And this was also probably the weaker of the cover selections. Um, I mean, the nightmare one is, uh, or midnight one is, is okay. Uh, other than that, I, I probably would have to go with the main cover as, as the best one. Um, Cause the others are, I mean, there's a James Stoko one. That's okay. Um, but yeah, other than that, it, none of the covers really, really impressed me. 
on this one. So um, I don't know. Did you have a, a cover you thought was better than than any oh, other? Well, I like cover B, the what looks like the Nightmare one with uh, sort of a, uh, a, a, almost like a, a vampiric Tim Drake Robin holding up some chains over his head. And it looks uh, – I really like the color palette there. It's it's dark and dreary and it looks it looks really good. It looks nightmarish and I, I it looks – you know, I, I quite like it, but if I had to pick, though, I, I agree with you that the cover Sam is the best. Did that? Does that cover? So. Sorry, this is, what? Who was that? Sam Wolf Connolly is the artist's oh. name, and yeah, that, that's creepy. That will actually give you nightmares. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, in terms of the in terms of the story itself, I uh, I, I agree with you. I, I didn't. I will say that this is probably. Uh, I think that people might be relieved. This this Tim Drake, uh, this Tim Drake is. Uh, it, it's funny that uh, a nightmare that Tim Drake doesn't have. I'm sure people will be happy, relieved to know that nowhere in this comic does Bernard show up. Uh, so Bernard, if you're listening, Bernard, you're not in Tim Drake's nightmare. I'm sure you're in his dreams. Relax, Tim. Uh, relax, Bernard. You're, you're you're not in Tim Drake's nightmare. So uh, so there's that. I would uh, I would have put Bernard in Tim Drake's nightmare, but I'm not the writer, <laughs> and uh, I just gotta I just gotta throw that in. But I this hey look, Kenny Porter, writer Kenny Porter. We we're we're seeing more and more of Kenny Porter. He's sort of like a, he's almost like he's an up and coming uh, writer in training at DC. Kenny. Porter knows these characters of Tim Drake and uh, Jason Todd. He knows them well enough. The problem is, so do we, the readers. And But I will say he makes the best of it. He makes the best of it because just like uh, Tim Drake failed to save his father in Identity Crisis and was killed by Captain Boomerang, uh, in the same manner, uh, Jason Todd failed to save, or at least uh, has issues with his, you know, failed to save his mother, and ultimately ends up getting killed by the Joker. Those are pivotal events, pivotal events in the life of both those characters. So this is about both both uh, Jason Todd and uh, Tim Drake having those particular issues and insomnia going to town and making the most of it. I like the fact that Kenny Porter makes it clear that Tim Drake is the detective. Unlike other heroes, Tim Drake does not know what Damian Wayne knows. Tim Drake doesn't know what Batman knows. But Tim Drake manages to deduce from the morphing landscape, the strange logic and the mental leaps that he's experiencing that they're in a dream world. He, he deduces that they're dreaming. So Kenny Porter really does script a very intelligent Tim Drake, uh, who's very well-spoken, very intelligent. He gets Jason Todd being a smart ass, sort of a, sort of a smart Alex, sarcastic, uh, you know, member of the bat family, probably the most sarcastic and it works. And in the end, uh, in the end, they, they sort of help each other out and it ends, as I said, it's, the, the art's fantastic. Miguel Mendonca's art really is great. Adriana Lucas' colors are, are really good. But again, is this, is this, uh, you know, is it anything we've, we haven't seen already, seen before? You know, again, I'll, I'll say this entire event, summer event is probably better maybe to pull in new readers because, you know, maybe to newer readers, because these fears really are, are endemic to these characters. And so if you don't know a lot about these characters, or you just want to get caught up on them. This event might be really good, might be new reader friendly in that respect. Yeah, I agree. Fortunately for us, it's a bit redundant. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Moving on, we have Night Terrors, The Flash, number one, written by Alex Pacnadel. Art is by Daniel Bayliss. Colors by Igor Monti. Letters by Simon Bolin. Again, we're not treading new ground here, but this does uh, have a lot of fantastic covers. From start to finish, might be the best uh, in terms of the quality of cover. Every one of them is fantastic, uh, particularly like the the Torin Clark one with these yeah. different shards of Barry uh, in the background. And then there's also one by Daniel Bayliss, uh, who does the interior art where the Flash costume is empty, uh, which is really cool looking. So yeah, this one is is great. But th- this is basically sort of a, a flashback to the first time that Wally West, Kid Flash, met Gorilla Grodd, first time they fought, and uh, Wally was gravely injured. This is Barry's nightmare, not being able to protect his family. And it's not anything new. Um, and he's running around. He's trying to, to figure things out, as it were. He goes to Iron Heights Penitentiary, and this is kind of creepy. Uh, he goes to Iron Heights Penitentiary to confront Grodd and to get some uh, answers to what's going on. And there's blood leaking out from a lot of the cell, from underneath a lot of the cell doors. And it's uh, Warden Wolf, who's uh, in charge there, a very young uh, Warden Wolf. Um, And he says, the reason the blood's leaking out is because a lot of the inmates don't want to fall asleep. So they're cutting their eyelids off. That was like a little, oh, why the hell? Why the hell are we doing that? Uh, So, yeah, that was that was kind of rough. I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate. Uh, and you know what? I just <laughs> remembered. I wanted to mention just to go back to uh, the nightmare or the night terrors Robin issue. Um, remember how I said they all had a, at least one great laugh out loud, laugh out loud line um, when Jason and Tim are interacting and Tim's talking about, you know, what particular things mean as he's trying to figure things out. Like Rocky mentioned him being the detective. Jason Todd's answer of, uh, you need a magnifying glass to look even farther up Batman's ass. Yeah. Uh, that one, yeah, that one had me, that one had me laughing out loud. Uh, yeah. but anyway, this is a fun issue in terms of flashing back. I like that Alex Pacnadel is linking Barry's fear, which is again, a fear we would expect him to have not being able to protect his family, but he's going back and he's linking it to a specific event that actually happened in a DC comic, right? With, uh, facing Kid Flash for the first time and Kid Flash getting gravely injured. So that to me was the best thing about this issue. Uh, the art is really strong as well. Um, what this speed force monster might be, I almost thought is the monster Barry himself. Cause that would make sense as well. Barry feeling like not only can he not protect his family uh, and it still may be the case. Um, not only can he not protect his family, but the reason that Wally is, in danger in the first place or gets hurt in the first place is because Barry allowed him to, to be kid flash or in some of the cases of the flash family, maybe Barry, you know, had a hand in them gaining their power. They became part of the flash family. Now they're, you know, putting themselves in harm's way. So Barry takes it all on himself again, not anything new. Barry's definitely somebody who carries a lot of guilt around. Um, I don't think Barry's Catholic, but he definitely feels like uh, he's got that Catholic guilt. So, Overall, this was a, a decent issue. Um, again, we're not treading new ground, um, but it's, yeah, it was fun. What do you think? 
Yeah, I I didn't quite understand the end when he says, I see Wally's monster, that somehow there's this monster. I wasn't sure if he was speaking... uh, I I wasn't sure if he was speaking literally or figuratively. There was a few times when Wally was talking about, in his fight with Grodd, the reason he slowed down is he saw some monster in the Speed Force that caused him to slow down. Um, So, and that's what I'm saying. Is that that monster... Because Barry, you know, he kind of travels tries to travel back in time to save right uh Wally at that moment and so yeah. i was like well he's gonna go back and he's the one that's distracting yeah wally i, I think um, you're right so he, yeah. yeah i think so, you're right because it, it makes sense that barry is the is the villain because well i mean i mean let's face it barry barry always seems to have a habit of uh screwing up time and he he always seems to be i mean all the speed villains uh are are all, they're all pissed off at barry uh and or Wally, and uh, they're the you know, well it is what it is. But in any event, I I like the callbacks to JSA Classified number eight and to Final Night number four. I loved Hal Jordan showing up, which uh, Hal Jordan having the face after after Final Night number four when he was Parallax and he gave his life replacing Pharaoh Lad to save the Earth from the from the Sun Eater, and then here it shows a, a, a Hal Jordan with a burned face. I thought that was, that actually was, I remember that because I love Final Night. That was one of my favorite, uh, that was one of my favorite uh, issues. I'm trying to find the, the picture with, uh, oh, there it is, with uh, Hal Jordan or as Parallax. I, I enjoyed that. I, again, and nice callbacks here. I like the I like the call even the reference of Gorilla Grodd using the Spear of Destiny, which I I think of the Spear of Destiny. I think of Adolf Hitler and the Justice Society and the Justice Society, all those classic stories. And so it was, it was a nice callback there. And the fact that Barry Allen always fears that Wally West dying and him failing it, you know, it it makes sense. It. And again, I I enjoy it. Uh, Alex Packnell shows he knows the characters. Daniel Bayless art was I thought was really good. I was you know uh, it was impressive. I I enjoyed it. I think you called it that that Barry Allen is going to be the his own nightmare uh, because it makes the most sense. And we'll see how it plays out and how they get out of this. And just as a, just a quick note here, it's interesting that that. Uh, Barry Allen is supposed to be, he should be, you would think that he would have enough detective skills that he'd figure out he's in a dream. But I'm wondering if maybe being in the speed force all the time, it skews up his own perception. And maybe there's a lot of similarities between what's in the speed force versus what's in a, in a dream world. Uh, because, you know, Tim Drake, it didn't take long for him to figure it out, albeit he is a genius. But I, I would have thought Barry Allen would have been able to figure this out a little bit sooner as well. Barry Allen, he, he does note, Barry Allen notes that, that, that Wally West is wearing yellow and should be wearing red. But, he's, but he, he can't make the connection that it's a dream. He knows that Hal Jordan doesn't have a burnt face. And yet he can't work it out that it's a dream. And it's it's really odd. Like, Barry, come on, man. Snap out of it. You're usually smarter than this. So so that's interesting. So just goes to show you Tim Drake's smarter than Barry Allen, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, favorite cover on this one? Uh, I would have to go with uh, – I like the – I actually really like the zombie one, Flash flying uh, – running as a zombie. I just don't know who drew it. Uh, Raphael Sarmento, okay. 150 variant so yeah uh yeah let's see up next we have uh night terror zatanna number one written by dennis culver drawn by david baldione colored by rain barretto letters by pat brosso interesting choice to have dennis culver because uh, it says zatanna but she teams up with robot man uh 
sort of unwillingly, you know, she's in the basement of the Hall of Justice. She's researching what's going on. She's trying to find um, because she's one of the few people that's awake. Red Tornado is working with a lot of the different robots and androids and what have you, trying to um, sort of halt the disasters that would happen if everybody fell asleep at the same time. You got planes in the air, you got people undergoing surgery, that sort of thing. Um, and so she's down there and she's trying to uh, research and figure out how to wake everybody up, find a spell when the sleepless nights uh, attack her and she needs some help. And so um, she, she says, bring me a champion uh, as much as she doesn't like flying blind with her magic and who shows up, but robot man. And she's like, Oh man, these doom patrol people, they're not to be trusted. Something always goes wrong with them. Um, so she's not really happy when he shows up. <laughs> it, ends up it ends up working out between the two of them. They sort of uh, find some common ground, if you will. So the David Baldione art is probably the art. And don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of David Baldione. I love his artwork. But it's probably the artwork that sort of least suits a horror book because he does have a little bit of a, a cartoony style. That being said, he's such a talented artist. He makes it work. And a lot of credit to Rain Barreto, the colorist as well, for uh, – for adding uh, their work to it to uh, to make sure that David Ballion's art comes across um, in the best possible light when it's basically a horror story. Unfortunately, uh, even though Zatanna and Robot Man come to an understanding and are working well together, uh, Robot Man gets infected. One of the sleepless nights says, you're knighted, and uh, stabs him through the back and basically turns him into a sleepless night called the Rustbringer. And it's a uh, it reminded me uh, a little bit of the Scarecrow, in, or not the Scarecrow, but the uh, Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. We've seen yeah. various iterations of the Wizard of Oz slash horror uh, over the years uh, where the Tin Man gets corrupted. It kind of reminded me of that. So we'll see. Um, Hunted by Robot Man is the next issue. Um, but yeah, this one was fun. Uh, but as much as it was fun, it was great to see the art from... Uh, David Baldione, this one might have felt like the least necessary of, of all of them. Um, the fantastic cover. It, it's almost like, a, like again, we're rocking here saying so many great covers. This one is almost like you took an, uh, an Adam Hughes Zatanna cover. He did so many of them back in the day that are now very pricey because everybody wants them. Um, but it's almost like somebody took one of those beautiful covers and like corrupted it, right? She's like yeah. zombified, her tights are torn, there's blood all over her face, what have you. Uh, it's pretty gross looking <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, the <laughs> artist is Kendrick Lim on that one. So that's probably my uh, my favorite cover. So yeah. what about you? Before you talk about the book? Yeah, my favorite cover is the next one with Satana with the octopus around her. And I'm not sure, Miko. again, is that? Miko Yan. Yeah, 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 great cover, yeah. They're all good. In fact, even uh, even uh, the the artist. Uh, sorry, who? That one's Riley Rosmo. Riley Rosmo. Even Riley Rosmo's uh, cover is, is actually pretty good. It's actually quite well done. But uh, I, I got to give uh, uh, compliments to David Baldi on the interior art. Is re I really liked it, and I thought it was. I thought I really found it uh, very appropriate. I thought it was fantastic, and and the coloring is by. Uh, Terrain Burrito's color is fantastic. The, when when 
Zatanna's weaving her magic. The the use of the different colors and the light uh, when she's fighting the Sleepless Night looks absolutely fantastic. Zatanna looks like a lone warrior fighting alone in the dark against the forces of true evil. I mean, all that cliche, but it looks fantastic. And then all of a sudden, man, it's so, I mean, it was just such an epic moment when she says, bring me a champion. And then, I mean, honestly... I know this is going to sound stupid, but I was so involved in this. I thought that when I got to this page, even though, even though on the on the cover, even though on the cover, Robot Man's on the cover. When she says, "Bring me a champion," I was surprised when Robot Man shows up because I never expected him to be the champion, even though he's on the cover. And even though I knew Dennis Culver was the writer, that's how yeah. that's how into this story I was. And I was still surprised. And I thought, how cool is that? Because you know. There's something what what what's what's great about magic what what I like about magic based heroes is the same thing that I don't like about magic based heroes and that is the rules are crazy and you don't always know what the rules are. Well, this is one time where I'm glad. It's sort of like when when she says she calls upon the magic world to bring me a champion. That's a pretty vague request. I mean, you, you mean what criteria is the magic is the magic realm going to used to pick a champion and how on earth did they arrive at robot man and so i'm thinking to myself there has to be a reason why robot man was chosen i like to think that other than the fact that dennis culver just wanted to use him because he writes doom patrol you know what i mean so i hope that there's a good in-story reason for that and uh anyways i really like it and i want to give a shout out to uh uh Artist David Baldion again for the maze. They come across a maze at one point. Uh, Zatanna is is they're escaping. Uh, her and Robot Man are escaping uh, through a maze, and this is after they've rescued and and brought Wonder Woman and Bibble and and uh, the Detective Chimp to to to. Uh, to safety, and it's just well done. I mean, that that takes a lot of work to 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 you know just draw a maze in the middle of a comic like that. And I thought I thought it was well done. And then we we even got David Baldion through and the fears of Zatanna has drawing an amazing Zatanna and playing on Z, on on you know Z, Zatara is Zatanna's father, and of course he he works on her insecurities again. If uh, this is a good reminder, as all these Night Terror issues are, as to who these characters are and what you you want to get to know somebody quick, find out what they fear the most. And that's really what these stories are doing. But I enjoyed this one. This was good. Yeah, that does it for the Night Terrors books, everybody. So if uh, you're speeding along, you can now take it off and fast forward and, and listen to the non-Night Terrors uh, issues. So we're going to kick it off with Spirit World number three, written by Alyssa Wong. Hanning is the artist, Sebastian Chang on colors, Janice Chang on letters. Uh, so this was really action-packed, almost from start to finish. It's uh, it's action. We finally have all three of our main heroes, I guess we'd say, John Constantine, the Cassandra Cain Batgirl, and, um, and Xanthi all finally get together in uh, the dream world. They're fighting against um, this this monster, the beast with a thousand eyes, um, and, and trying to, to figure out exactly what's going on, who has put them in this chin, who's trying to break out of the, the spirit world as it were. Um, they're trying to, to not sell their soul to this demon that, uh, that they had talked about the, this information broker, um, that they went to for answers. Uh, Shen is her name. Um, so it, a lot of 
parts of the, the story that have been laid out are starting to, to come together. Um, and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. We get some clue, um, that we're seeing the, the big bad finally, although we don't really have a name other than beast of a thousand eyes. I mean, she's depicted as this woman with this bluish green skin and she's got eyes everywhere. As we would say, like even on her chest and her breast, it's very, it's a very strange, uh, depiction of her. Um, but what she wants other than to just break out of the dream world and, and how Xanthi might be a part of that, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Um, I thought the art was so good in this issue. It, it Not to the point that it pulled me out of the story, but as I was reading, I was aware, man, this art is fantastic. Now, don't get me wrong. I thought the art in the first two issues was fine, um, but it, it feels like the artist Hanning really stepped their game up. And I don't know if it's just them, you know, it took them a couple issues to sort of feel comfortable. And now they're just like letting loose with all their talent. But man, the art in this just blew me away uh, for being, um, I don't want to say this is a horror title, but when you're talking about the spirit world, you're, you know, you're dealing with monsters, you're dealing with people, uh, characters who are dead, basically. Uh, so you would expect a little bit uh, darker color palette, but very bright colors. And it, it, it really works. Uh, I will say that Hanning's art does have quite a bit of uh, almost an anime or a manga influence. So a lot of characters, uh, they've got the real big eyes. There's specifically a panel with um, with Cassandra Kane where she says, I'm back, girl. And, you know, she's got the very small chin, you know, almost like an upside down triangle shaped face and really big eyes, which, again, it's very looks very manga. Um, so, yeah, that panel there, the bottom one. Um, some people may have, you know, a little trouble with that saying, ah, it's not what Cassandra Cain looks like, but it works. The art I think is very, very strong in this. So, um, I will say that spirit world so far, uh, as a series is making me feel like it's going to read better in a trade just because Alyssa Wong is stuffing so much in It's a very fast paced issue, but it's a limited series. And I'm sure that, uh, space was at a premium. So if it feels like a, it's moving along at a breakneck pace and you feel a little lost at times, you know, don't worry, <laughs> reread it all in one sitting, or if you read it in the trade, I'm sure it'll read just fine. Uh, but yeah, I was very impressed. I, I'm enjoying the series. I think Xanthi's a, a very interesting character. Um, I won't go so far as to say it felt like a little tokenism when she was created, you know, this non-binary Asian character. So it's checking a lot of, you know, diversity boxes as far as, you know, being an, a female uh, or, or appearing to be female actually being non-binary and also Asian. Um, but she's just a great character or, or they're just a great character, I should say. Um, so curious to see how they'll fit into the ongoing DCU. Um, we know the magic corner of the DC universe at times sort of rises up in importance and how well that's done is a matter of you know, you, you could argue that the Lazarus Reign event was a magical event, but in terms of showcasing those characters, I don't think it really did a very good – it could have done such a better job if it had been a more, more coherent event instead of just, uh, you know, a, a first issue, Alpha, second issue, Omega, that really was the whole event, and then all these one-shot anthologies where, it you know, it's better to involve these characters in an event where they interact with each other. And you, you know, they have an actual mission as opposed to just throwing all these, um, 
these stories. That's well now, you know, from a creator perspective, I understand why you do it that way. It gives DC a chance to give all these different creators who haven't had a chance before. Hey, let's see what they can do. We'll put them on an eight page that's going to go in this anthology, and you know, maybe we'll discover some new talent. So I get it. I get that. But from a reader perspective, it's not as rewarding, um, and it, I don't think it, it lends itself to developing new characters like Xanthi as uh, when you're just getting little eight pagers here and there from various creators. So, uh, anyway, what do you think of uh, Spirit World Three? I I continue to struggle a little bit with getting a handle on this new world, but I, I it reminds me a little bit of how I felt at the beginning of Monkey Prince, and that really paid off for me. My my patience and my rereading paid off. And I, I want to be I'm, – I'm very much prepared to cut Spirit World some slack here because this is a brand new character to me. And you know what? The challenge that I enjoy is, you know, I'm trying to remember how often other than – how often in the DC universe does one really get a chance to delve into a brand new universe with a brand new character right from scratch? And you know what? I remember when I was young, when I first started reading comics – I think the first comic I read was in the middle, right smack dab in the middle of a Superboy and Legion of Superheroes uh, comic book uh, arc. And I didn't know what was going on, but I, you know, I, I, I was totally up for the challenge and I became a lifelong comic collector. Uh, if I could do it when I'm six and seven years old, I'm sure I can do it when I'm as old as I am now. So now was that, uh, the, uh, the Superboy and Legion where the chains were encircling the earth. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the villain. The guy did have chains. He did have chains, but they were back issues. But uh, so they were older than. Uh, I can't remember the name of the villain. I can't remember the name of the villain because it's right. it's a classic. We'll, we'll talk later, but I mean, I'll show you the comic. I still have it, but oh, but hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, but in any event, yeah. <laughs> but so anyway, so when I read Spirit World, I I admit that I don't entirely know. I mean, this Shen is an info broker about Spirit World, and they're getting information from this Shen character. Cassandra Kane is looking for people that she promised to help that are lost in this Spirit World. And the longer the living stay in Spirit World, the closer they're going to. It's terrible for them because only the dead can live in Spirit World. And meanwhile, there's this Jade, this this villain called Jade, who wants to feed off the living and wants to feed off Batgirl and feed off Constantine. And I, I don't really know why the spirit world exists, quite frankly. I, I don't know what the purpose is. Why, if there's a heaven and hell, what need of you of the spirit world? There's so many questions I have that I would normally expect to see in an origin, but none of that's been explained to me to my satisfaction yet. So I still don't really understand the existence of spirit world, quite frankly. But I'm still intrigued enough by the story. I also find myself, the most interesting aspect I thought was, was there was a flashback when Shen bit into Cassandra Kane. He saw into Cassandra Kane's past and it, it showed images of Cassandra Kane being killed by her mother, Lady Shiva. And that was in the classic, uh, you know, uh, that was in the classic original 73 issue Bad Girl run that culminated in Destruction's Daughter, a fantastic story arc. But when L Lady Shiva at one point killed her daughter and then resurrected her in the Lazarus pit. And what I find interesting is my question is, and I'm probably assuming too much on the part of uh, the writer Alyssa Wong here, but Cassandra Kane has some experience with death. She's been killed and she's been resurrected. And I'm wondering that since Cassandra Kane has been in fact dead and then resurrected in the Lazarus pit, does that maybe give her some extra abilities 
in spirit world? Probably not, but I, I, I found myself really fascinated by that aspect of it because it showed the background of Cassandra Kane. I would love, I would have no problem with Cassandra Kane becoming maybe a permanent, uh, you know, maybe a, a partner to spirit, to uh, Santi and or in future stories because I think that's fascinating because uh, just because of Cassandra Kane's background. But in any event, I, I thought that was interesting. And I'm curious to see how this all wraps up. I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely prepared to cut this, uh, cut this character some, some slack, even though it was a little bit lost in the last issue in terms of what it was trying to do. I, um, this whole, you know, I enjoy it. And the art, uh, kudos to the artist. Uh, who's the, who is the artist here? Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah. Really good art. Really good art. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman Incorporated issue number 10 from writer Ed Brisson, John Timms, Michelle Bandini, and David Lafuente as artists. Rex Locus on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. What'd you think? I This is probably one of my uh, favorite issues. It, it's starting to come together. I don't know about you, but uh, just my luck here, the, the images aren't appearing on the screen here. Just a minute. Uh, well... We know that uh, the Joker has essentially put Batman Incorporated in an impossible position that's testing their code against killing. And and Joker has his own group, group of clowns that he's got all over the globe and is testing all the members of Batman Incorporated. And it's basically testing them in such a way that is saying, look, if uh, you guys, you're either going to. The Joker tells Ghostmaker that your your fellow members of Ghost of uh, Batman Incorporated are going to have to kill my members of Joker Incorporated, because I've got, I put bombs in all my, in all my, all the members of Joker Incorporated have got bombs in their head. <laughs> and unless you kill them, those bombs are going to go off. And uh, uh, so it's a sort of an impossible situation. And Ghostmaker has, appears in this issue to be all but certain. He, he is basically given the order to all members of Batman Incorporated to take out the person you're facing. So... And, uh, you know, and this results in Raven Red facing off against Dusty Bronco, who killed his father in a previous issue. And uh, we've got Dark Ranger, uh, Dark Ranger facing off against Corvus Crawl, who ends up uh, killing uh, Wingman because Wingman was killed by Corvus Crawl last issue because Wingman, uh, Dark Ranger wanted to prevent Wingman from killing, uh, from killing uh, Corvus Crawl. And, but, and he, unfortunately, Dark Ranger distracted uh, Wingman and from killing Carver's Crawl, and Carver's Crawl kills Wingman, and that sends Dark Dark Ranger then has to take out Carver's Crawl in such a way as to not to kill him. But Ghostmaker's telling Dark Ranger, "You have to kill him. You have to kill him because if you don't kill him, he's gonna he's gonna blow up, and he, uh, many innocents more, more more innocents are gonna die." And that's just one. There, there's multiple scenarios here. Kudos to Ed Brisson, who who manages to take multiple fighting sequences and make sense out of all of them in such a way that he does it really masterfully here. And just going, you know, one at a time here. The Batman of China confronts uh, Ghostmaker at the end. Uh, and basically tells Ghostmaker that, you know, come hell or high water, we're going to find a way to do this without killing anybody. But meanwhile, we got, uh, we got, as I said, we got Raven Red facing off against the Dusty Bronco who and uh, wants to get revenge on him for killing his dad. We got 
uh, Dark Ranger, who in a moment of, of unbelievable sacrifice, uh, utilizes a bomb to blow up the ground and the crater created by the explosion, he takes Cor Corvus uh, Crawl and just before Corvus Crawl is going to explode, he sacrifices his life by pushing Corvus Crawl into the crater and he sacrifices his life. So at the end of this issue, we, we got two members of Joker Incorporated killed. We got two members of Batman Incorporated killed. We got Wingman and Dark Ranger both dead. And, uh, and, we we got casualties on both sides, and meanwhile we got the Chi Batman of China is telling Ghostmaker, "Look, no more people are going to die here. We've got to we've got to uh, figure out a way to end this to defeat the Joker without uh, killing more people, uh, especially if we're doing this intentionally." And meanwhile, the the issue ends. We 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 know that we know that uh, Gyro Red, Raven Red is facing off against uh, uh, Dusty Bronco, and we know that the Knight and Grey Wolf end up uh, confronting Die Laughing, and Die Laughing is one character who decides to betray the Joker, and he he gives them a clue. He gives he gives the Knight. Uh, actually, a clue by uh, give gives her a pill, or it looks like to be a pill in a in a bottle, uh, to give her to give them some evidence of what they can, so that they can figure out how they can shut off the device that is making the bombs go off, uh, that are killing so many people, and. Now, Die Laughing is doing that because he thinks the Joker's too cocky and is too big for his britches, and he figures the only way he can ultimately survive this Die Laughing is if he, uh, or Die Laughing or whatever, is if maybe the Knight and Grey Wolf can figure out how to utilize to maybe, I don't know, reverse engineer the device to to create it, uh, to prevent the bombs from, from going off. Anyways... So many, there, there's so much crammed in this issue. It's almost frustrating. It's like there's, you know, as frustrating as I have been with Ed Brisson, uh, you know, Tom, John Timms, the artist, does a really good job here. There's so many multiple settings. I mean, if this was a movie, I this would be too many scenes. There, there would be too many cutaway scenes for the movie. But somehow in this issue, it just seems to work because the, all, they're, all, they're all over the world here that, with, that we got Joker Incorporated, members of Joker Incorporated, Fighting Batman Incorporated. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to some of my friends on the uh, chat at uh, Weird Science CC who have made a prediction. And I don't know, I think maybe, Jason, you made this as well. Maybe you did. That the prediction was that Wingman was, was really Bruce Wayne. And that is, if is Wingman really Bruce Wayne? Now, Wingman is killed. But could this entire thing be an elaborate test for Ghostmaker, could Bruce Wayne, could Batman be orchestrating all of this just to test Ghostmaker to see if Ghostmaker will kill? And because it makes you wonder, because there are some some characters that we don't know who they are. Now I don't I don't see the clues. I don't see that. But I'm wondering if that's the case. Is Batman really one of the characters of Batman Incorporated that we don't know enough about? I don't know. But man, I'm I'm really enjoying this. Lots of questions, and I don't know. I'd be curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, I uh, I did not make that prediction. I don't think that's the case. Would be interesting if so. Uh, the one thing I'll say is I, I wasn't real happy with having three artists on this. I thought John Timms he's he's been was the artist that kicked it off. His art is fantastic. Michelle Bandini uh, she's done a few issues on her own as well. I also think her art is fantastic. It's the La Fuente art I think that just doesn't suit the tone of the book. 
Uh, and it's interesting, Fayente has done a few other things for DC recently. And I kind of just wonder, like, you know, why is he doing so much stuff at DC? It seems like they're giving him, hey, here's a few pages here. Here's a few, few pages there. As an artist, I got to think that's kind of frustrating to not just have a regular gig so you can kind of get your feet under you. You know, we just talked about Spirit World and how I felt like Hanning has leveled up their art as uh, the story has gone along. So um, it, it just, again, the, the, the La Fuente, are not, nothing against David La Fuente. It just, it doesn't, the style's so different than the other two artists and it just doesn't suit kind of the stakes of the story because that's what it's all about here, right? We're talking about stakes. We're talking about life and death. Um, and I love that Ed Brisson is, um, he's exploring that when it comes to Batman's choice not to kill. Um, you know, what does it mean? Is it the best way? You know, there's that line here where Ghostmaker says, uh, this is Batman's fault. If he would have taken care of the Joker a long time ago, we wouldn't even be in this position right now. So it's a, it's a philosophical question um, and it makes a lot of sense. It works for me. So I, I appreciate what Brisson is doing. Uh, I think there's only, I think they already announced the end, end of the series, right? I think there's only like 12 issues. It wasn't initially announced as a, as a limited, but I think it turns out to be, uh, a limited series. Does, does that sound familiar to you at all? Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty sure this ends at 12. I thought this was a 12 issue series myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm going to be disappointed, you know, as, as sort of confusing as it was early on, just in terms of uh, there's just so many characters, like we've mentioned many, many times. Um, I, but it works. It works. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what we're getting here. Uh, yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, up next, we have Wildcats number nine. Uh, this has been a struggle for you, this series. So I'm curious what you thought of this one because you did mention, uh, I think it might have been before we started recording, that you really enjoyed it this week. So uh, Wildcats number nine, writer Matthew Rosenberg, Danny Kim and Tom Derenek are the artists, Elmer Santos on colors, Farron Delgado on letters. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, sorry, I... I... I'm having problems accessing the uh, the comics here, but uh, uh, look, I've I have this has been uh, somewhat convoluted at times. I've been I've been up and down with this series. There have been comics, there's been issues, individual issues that I really liked where I felt it was clear, and then there would be an issue that would confuse me. This issue, I think, it sort of brought it brought a lot home, and. Uh, this one, I, I liked it. And probably not surprising, the reason why I liked it so much is that it actually does have Wildcat kissing Zealot on the cover. And it's got a hell of a beautiful cover B as well. I'm not sure who the artist is, but man, they, the, the variant covers are, are gorgeous on this. Like really, really good. Cover C is really good. But uh, in any event... Yeah, Palo, Palo Pantolina on that cover. And yeah, far and away, my, fa my favorite cover. It's just... So good. So yeah. Good. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous. And uh, no, so basically we know Cole Cash, our, our grifter from our universe, is actually trapped in another universe. And he's on a mission to uh, essentially take out uh, – he's actually trying – he's there to uh, rescue Adriana. And I, I, one of the things that confused me is, you know, because Cole – Gr Grifter was killed about four or five issues ago, and then it was found that his body was replaced by a body from an, another Grifter in another universe, and they can never figure out why. And then Grifter was having this other adventures in this other universe, and we have two adventures going on. They seem completely disconnected. It didn't really seem to work here. 
And um, this here, we get a little bit more of an explanation uh, because la finally John Lynch shows up and John Lynch, basically the Wildcats, finally they're talking to put everything together. And that is that it's just confirming that, uh, that you know, the Court of Owls is uh, this, this Hall Jason Halliday character is trying to take out what the Wildcats and he's, he's part of the Court of Owls. And that's something that should have been, I think, more clear or stated with um, – without so much plot, side plots earlier on. I mean, we knew that the, the Court of Owls showed up at the end of issue one. We knew that. And then Jason Halliday showed up. And we knew that Jason Halliday was making a play and manipulating Marlowe and the Wildcats. So yes, we always knew that. But getting to this point has been somewhat of a, uh, of a frustrating run. But we're finally here. And finally, the Wildcats are starting to fight back in a little bit more of a coherent fashion. John Lynch is... Uh, is finally starting to come into the fray and they're finally starting to maybe make their move against Jason Halliday. They have to rescue Voodoo who is uh, trapped and who's basically being, she's, there's a great scene where she's actually being, uh, they attempt to essentially torture her and just some, some really great work is done here. And she, the way that she, the way that she takes them out is, 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 it's really good. There's some great plot sequences, and all with the with the goal here of of basically saving the Wildcats from being destroyed, basically killed by uh, Jason Halliday and his own eclectic team of villains that he sort of put together over the last nine issues. And meanwhile, Cole Cash is uh, you know zealot in this other universe, loves the Grifter in our universe, and she you know. She wants to, you know, in order to get back to our universe, Grifter has to basically kill Adriana and his brother who died in our universe is alive in the other universe. And he has to, he has to, unfortunately, his brother won't let him kill Adriana, but he needs to in order to get back to his right time. And it was actually heartfelt. And Zealot ends up killing his brother and then he ends up killing Zealot, who, who he loves in our time. So it's this crazy love triangle, his love for his brother, uh, his brotherly love, and then his love for, for, for Zealot. And it's honestly, if, if you, in, in a crazy way, it kind of worked for me, but I, at the same time, I can see the, how all of it together, it can be a little, it is a little wonky. This is definitely one of those stories that it's going to read so much better as a trade. I just, I wish, I wish as so often the case with Matthew Rosenberg, I, I wish this was a case where I didn't have to say it would read better as a trade uh, because, you know, I, I like this issue, but in order to really get the most out of this issue, I, there, we were waiting way too long for these payoffs, way too long for these payoffs. It didn't have to take this long, like five or six issues. It, we shouldn't have had to wait this long. Again, I'm, I found myself satisfied enough. But, you know, as, as I'm talking about it, I actually realize I'm more disappointed with it th than not. But it's finally getting toward the end. Uh, but I wish mo moving forward, it's this is one of this is end up going to this is going to end up being a 12 issue series that should have taken place in six issues, quite, quite frankly. But uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I get your point. Um, and I will also say that uh, I think it's a situation where. If you know a lot about the Wildcats, you're going to get more out of it as well. Um, 
but yeah, it is going to read better to trade. This story has been, you know, I've talked so much about it being a political story and at times it, it, it definitely has been, this is more puts the politics to the side a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of machinations with people going after Marlowe and, and trying to get information from voodoo and what have you. But for the most part, this is an action oriented issue. And so I think I've noticed that when we have the oriented issues from Matthew Rosenberg, that's when you're like, oh yeah, this is better. You know, I'm enjoying this issue. It's, it's better than I've been given it credit for. So I, I find that to be interesting. Um, and, and again, it makes, it makes sense that it works for you on that level. Um, I will say that there was a, as is often the case with Matthew Rosenberg, there's always a line or two uh, that makes you laugh out loud and uh, laugh out loud. And for this one, uh, it's when Grifter, you know, she, he's in there with Adriana, he's in there with Void, uh, you know, that world's version of Void. Hey, I'm here to break you out, what have you. And she's like, no, I like it here. It's peaceful. It's quiet. Uh, you know, and she, he's talking about the various, like, what's all this stuff floating around? She's like, oh, it's parts of this asteroid. It takes away my powers and whatever. Uh, but be careful. You shouldn't breathe it in too long. You know, it's harmful for you. She doesn't want to leave. It's peaceful there. And he, his line, Grifter's line. Yeah, it's great. I'm getting lung cancer from all this peace. Right? There's so much peace in that, in that chamber. Uh, but he's getting lung cancer because he's breathing an asteroid. So that was just a laugh out loud moment for me. So I agree with you. It's probably going to read better as a trade, uh, which isn't always ideal. Like you mentioned, um, because the other aspect of that is kind of to have to wait for a trade. But but I also think that for longtime uh, listener or longtime readers of Wildcats, you're going to get a lot out of this um, as well. Because again, I think that uh, there's just a lot here that plays on um, that plays on concepts from from previous Wildcat stories. So there's that aspect of it uh, as well. So. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Uh, I think this is working for me, and the the art was really fantastic. Um, I didn't mind that we had uh, several different artists on it, um, like we've had in the past. Uh, I think it's for the most part working. Segovia and Santos's, or, or sorry, Danny Kim and Tom Derenick's art is similar enough. Uh, and and the other thing that I really liked about it, we don't often get to see Voodoo showcase her abilities as a fighter. Uh, a lot of times it's, you know, to do with her, her mental powers. So for her to be able to like take out these uh, on a physical level was pretty fun as well. So, yeah. No. Uh, all right. Up next, we have world's finest teen Titans. Number one from writer, Mark Wade, Emmanuel Lupacchino is the artist, Jordi Blair on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Um, this is sort of a flashback, a throwback, which Mark Wade has been doing uh, quite a bit of lately. It works on that level in terms of, hey, um, this is a bit of a flashback to uh, to a, a, a bygone era, if you will, when the Titans were first formed. They're wearing their classic costumes. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Part of what I really enjoyed about it was seeing so many of these characters talk to their mentors, if you will. Um, you know, it's, it's Dick Grayson talking to Robin. It's Aqualad talking to Aquaman. Uh, you know, Donna Troy talking to Wonder Woman, Speedy, Speedy trying to talk to Oliver, um, getting to see a lot more of Bumblebee than we may have been used to in the past. All that sort of thing really works for me. Um, so yeah, I was I was pretty impressed. Uh, Lupacino's art, she's doing something different with her art than we've seen her do before uh, to kind of go back to a more simpler time, cleaner lines, uh, not real heavy in detail on the background. 
which goes back and, and sort of um, harkens back to that era of, of Teen Titans. So for those that aren't familiar with Teen Titans, um, this is probably one that you'll enjoy. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big Teen Titans guy, to be honest with you. Even the classic Wolfman Perez stuff's only okay for me. Um, but this is going back to, you know, times before that, back to the Silver Age. So for me, the Doc Shaner cover with uh, Dick Grayson is is the one to get. Um, but yeah, overall, this was okay. The team dynamics with Speedy, uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm saying this is a throwback to an earlier time. And it is in a way, but it's also set in, in modern day. It's almost like if the Teen Titans, if these sidekicks were to decide to form a team, the original sidekicks for all these heroes were to decide to form a team in modern times when they're still teenagers, what does that look like, right? So we're, we're talking about, you know, a modern iteration of that classic team because one of the things that Speedy does that's annoying Dick so much is dealing with social media, right? filming their battles with drones, interacting with fans and other people on social media. And, um, and he's using it the way I look at it. He's using it as a way to get attention uh, because he, he, he's craving some attention from Oliver Queen, who's not there for him. He's busy being Green Arrow. He's busy running this company. Um, and he's just looking for, and I don't want to say I don't want to say he's craving attention in a bad way. Like he just needs some he needs somebody to talk to. He needs somebody to listen. He needs somebody to be a friend. And rather than trying to connect with his teammates who all have their own mentors, and maybe he'll get there. You know, this is the very beginning of the team. Maybe he'll get there. Um, instead, he's reaching out to strangers through social media. That's where he's looking for validation that he's not getting from Oliver Queen. So that's that's sort of uh, that that uh, subplot is there. It's a little more advanced. You don't necessarily need to, you know, focus on that if you're a younger reader, because this is very new reader friendly uh, and it does feel very classic. But that's interesting to me, to, to, the idea of these kids at the beginnings of their careers. But if the beginnings of their careers were now, that's that's interesting, right? Because you couldn't deal with those kind of issues in the book when it came out in the 60s, when Teen Titans first started, because there was no social media back then. Some would say the world was a better place. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, it's interesting. Leave it to Mark Wade to explore this. Uh, Mark's going to be coming on the show soon uh, to talk about Irredeemable, but uh, of course we're going to touch on World's Finest. And we'll talk about this as well, because I think that's such an interesting to the story, uh, taking these classic teenage sidekick heroes and having them form the Teen Titans in, in current time. That lends itself to a lot of interesting things to explore. So uh, what did you think of this? Uh, I thought this was uh, really good. I have to admit that what threw me off was uh, it threw me off first negatively. I thought, how on, what, how are they using smartphones? And I'm, and then suddenly, well, suddenly it hit me, and I'm like, duh. Well, they're using smartphones because the DC timeline is extremely tight. This is really only maybe five years ago. I mean, when uh, when Robin, when Nightwing, when 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 Robin joined the Titans, he was what maybe fifteen or sixteen, and now he's 20, like maybe this was five or ten years ago. But if we if this is based on modern times, going ten years ago, it just occurred to me that we still had smartphones ten years ago. I mean, uh, my God! So it made me realize that uh, M Mark Wade is doing something that needs to be done if comic books are supposed to appeal to a new generation, and that is, you know. The, the golden age of heroes is going to, the timelines have to be moved up. And because of technology, our 
increasing so fast. You know, from 1990, I think what, what Facebook debuted in 1996. I mean, the technological revolution, which has impacted our society, is so huge that I mean, in the last 20 years, 23, 25 years, it's been huge, and so that 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 has to be reflected in some way in the in the initial original years of these. Teen Titans and Mark Wade very wisely and I think very brilliantly utilized the character of Roy Harper and you absolutely nailed it and it's reflected in the story that of course Roy Harper would be more prone to love social media he's not getting attention from Green Arrow so naturally he loves the attention of social media um, although what does that say for the rest of us do I need more attention from my my own family uh, but in any event um I thought it was I thought it was some good character work. I, I like how I like Dick Grayson's frustrations. I like Donna Troy's conversations with with Wonder Woman. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I want to give some compliments to uh, to Mark Wade, who's who by his own admission says he doesn't understand Wonder Woman. But I think he understands Diana well enough when Diana makes a comment about Batman. She tells Donna that I do know that Batman likes to cast a large shadow, you know. Batman figures that no one on the on on the Titans is experiences Dick Grayson, and of course we got Green Arrow is uh, not exactly round enough for Roy. We got Aquaman giving advice to uh, 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 Tempest, uh, who will at at the time or Aqua I think it was Aqualad at the time was having a relationship with Donna Troy. This all comes together very well. And again, this is something that in masterfully Mark Wade's kind of way, these are he's telling these past stories that we can look back and these past stories can be incorporated in present day storylines. And that's really the brilliant way of doing it. You can tell past stories and current stories and connect them at the same time, which he's already done in the pages of World's Finest. So I thought this was pretty damn good. Yeah, moving on, we have uh, Superman Lost number five, written by uh, Christopher Priest, uh, plot and script, Carlo Pagulian, plot and pencils, Jason Paz on inks, Jeremy Cox on colors, Willie Schubert handles the letters. This has been sort of an up and down series for you as well, but I think you enjoyed this uh, issue, so give us your thoughts. Uh, yeah, this was. Uh, uh, Christopher Priest, uh, this this is my favorite issue so far because this is one where, you know, what I wanted out of this series is what he explores in this issue, and that is the real the psychological impact that it has on Superman on Earth. 20 years later, he spent all that time being away from home. What's the psychological impact on Superman? And what I what I feared this would be and what we got too much of in earlier issues was just a bunch of adventures that Superman's on while he's lost. Well, no. I want to see more of the psychological element. And that's what we get here. And the, the moments in here that really... There were so many wonderful little moments in here that I thought were so well. It starts off with Lois Lane meeting Wonder Woman, uh, arranging a lunch date with Wonder Woman, Diana, because she wants to borrow the magic lasso. And ultimately, she wants to use the magic lasso because she wants to use it to try to help Clark, help help to ground Clark in, into some kind of the, the reality, the, the truth of his current circumstances into actual reality because Clark... He's not himself at work. He's staring off into space. He's he's distance. He's he's used to silence. He's used to being alone. He's used to being isolated. And and we as the readers, we're still only getting snapshot of what he went through. And 
And while Clark is going through all this and he's struggling with this and we, we, we get snapshots of what, what Clark actually did on, on, on that planet that he was on for, for at least two or three years or four or five years. We don't know how long he ends up on this other planet where basically he created his own home, which looked a lot like his home in Kansas that he grew up. He, he's even got an alien friend that he calls Jimmy. <laughs> it's pronounced Jimmy. And, and he, he meets this new Green Lantern character that he met. Uh, her, her name is actually Hope. Her name is actually Hope. And it's incredible what happens because she, she's a Green Lantern that, unfortunately for Superman, she can't help him find home because when she became the Green Lantern, there was something wrong with the ring. She's lost. She doesn't even know where the Green Lantern core is. She doesn't know where Oa is. She doesn't know how to use the ring well enough. The, the ring is, is somehow flawed in some way that she can't get Superman home. And even if she could get Superman home, she falls in love with Superman during the years that they spend together on the planet. Uh, while while this Jimmy character is trying to find a way uh, using science to get Superman home, to get Clark home, Hope is falling in love with him. And you get the hint that, that Clark is falling in love with Hope as well. There's a scene where he's staring at Hope for one moment while she's, she's actually in the shower. And it's a very provocatively uh, drawn. Uh, Carlo uh, Pagulion's art is fantastic. Jason Paz on the inks. Uh, Jeremy Cox in the colors. She's a sexy, good-looking Green Lantern, and uh, <laughs> and she 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 is so in love with Clark that she actually sabotages and renders unconscious Jimmy as he discovers a way to send Clark to get Clark home, and and you really begin to see exactly what Clark went through, uh, just 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 a hint of it, and. At the end, we, it shows the present where Lois wraps the magic lasso around Clark and there's just silence. And what I, what I like about this is Christopher Priest is doing something that we don't see enough of with Superman. We're often, most writers bombard, they, most writers will make us privy to Superman's thoughts. Christopher Priest doesn't do that here. The, the, it's more powerful when Christopher Priest lets Carlo Pagulian's art, uh, art speak for itself. Clark is silent. He's, it's, he, he's lost in his own mind and he, he's going through something. And, he's, and it's the magic lasso of truth where he can, that grounds him into reality at the end where he just hugs Lois and there's that moment of solitude and silence and he, he is genuinely lost. This is an appropriately named title. And I love the character work here because it forces the reader to try to imagine what Clark went through when you're floating in space for years and all you have is silence. And then all of a sudden you're back after 20 years and you have all this noise and you got to make sense of all that. How do you, how do you manage all that? I think Christopher Priest in this issue in particular does a fantastic job of just giving us a hint of what that must be like. And I just thought it was so great. The character work, the art, the, uh, just fantastic. So I, this was uh, definitely one of my candidates for my, my favorite comic of the week. So what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the art in this book continues to be absolutely fantastic. And you, you covered the emotional and sort of mental aspect of it really, really well. What, what I do find interesting um, cause there was a time where I was thinking, okay, well, uh, 
if he's out there, he's out there for decades and what have you, and he's all alone, you know, the solitude and what have you. And Lois even comments on it when she meets up with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, you know, asks how he's how he's doing. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because you wonder, well, hold on a second. Um, if he was out there for so long, then, you know, and he was by himself, you can kind of understand how an issue with him feeling uh, alone. But like you mentioned, we realize that he, he hasn't been alone. So what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about him pining after a lost love? And how is that going to sit with a lot of long time like Lois and and uh, and wonder, uh, you know, Lois and Clark fans basically that that love their their relationship. So how, how, do, how does that work? That all remains to be seen uh, how that's all going to work and if if it's going to work on a better level or not. Um, but for the most part, um, I find it to be pretty interesting. Uh, so uh, the, and then there there are aspects, other aspects of the story as well. When we start talking about. Um, the political aspects of this planet that the new Kansas or whatever you want to call it is um, priest doesn't forget about that. Uh, we get a little more context in terms of, yeah, Hey, th- these people, they, they decided this, they decided that they wanted to be in this situation. This is what they voted for or what have you. So uh, that's interesting on a lot of levels as well. So this continues to be a really good story, really enjoying it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can't say enough fantastic things about the artwork in it. It's, it's just so good. Uh, so, uh, all right. Up next, we have Unstoppable Doom Patrol number four from writer Dennis Culver. David LaFuente is the artist. Brian Reber on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Interesting story here um, that we're getting in the fourth issue. We get a lot of uh, this this doctor here, Doctor Cinco, that we've seen in the first couple issues. Um, she's <laughs> combined herself in some way. She's commune, the way she puts it with fifth, fifth dimensional entities. So she has basically sort of five personalities. Um, there's five people that she channels. Um, Jackson, Elhim, Rez, Raz, and Yizd, I guess. Uh, you can call us Jerry for short. That's if you take the first letter of each of the the people that she's, or entities that she's channeling, <laughs> it spells Jerry. And she gets a chance to talk um, to different members of the, uh, of the Doom Patrol. So it's a way for Dennis Culver to get an introduction and some background into the various characters. So um, this is a, an issue for for readers who aren't that familiar with Elastigirl or Robot Man or some of these other characters. Uh, and what I find interesting about it, uh, Negative Man's another one who sits down and talks to Jerry. What I find interesting about it is Dennis Culver is taking aspects of the classic Doom Patrol uh, the, that characterization of the characters. And he's also pulling from things that Grant Morrison did and Rachel Pollack did. And he's sort of melding it all together, which is really, uh, really interesting. Um, and I think that's the best way to do it, right? The best way to do it is to really mine from all the previous iterations of Doom Patrol so that you're giving something to all the fans of the, the various eras of Doom Patrol, um, Rather than just saying, okay, this is a sequel to what Rachel Pollock did or a sequel, to, a sequel to what Grant Morrison did or forgetting about the, the you know, vertigo of the Doom Patrol and going all the way back to like the Steve Lytle version or, or even the, the Silver Age version. Instead, you're getting an amalgamation of all of it, which really opens up the storylines uh, and, and story opportunities for Dennis Culver. 
And, and what it also makes me realize is that seven issues is not really enough for uh, for Doom Patrol here because, I mean, we're halfway, we're over halfway through. If it's only seven issues, this is issue four. And I feel like we're just getting started. We're really just getting started. We had the road trip issue last time. Um, we had the first issues to kind of establish what this new status quo for Doom Patrol is, sort of um, uh, a situation where it's superheroes out there sort of rescuing people who don't know and don't understand their own newfound powers that they gained during the Lazarus Reign event. So, God, I, this needs – I hope it's selling well, and I hope that DC extends this. I hope they make it an ongoing like they did with the Geo, uh, the G. Willow Wilson Poison Ivy because uh, there's so much – to be, there's so much more to be told here. Uh, and Dennis Culver is going to be at San Diego Comic-Con. So I'm hoping to get a chance to talk to him. If not, I'll have him on the show later. I mean, he, we've talked about having him on before. Um, but, and I'm not even talking about wanting to talk to him to come on the show. I just want to talk to him because I'm so excited about the series uh, and just pick his brain uh, and, and discuss it with him because there's so much potential here. Um, I'm really enjoying it. This is my favorite Doom Patrol series since all the way back in the 1987 that Steve Lytle drawn uh, Doom Patrol was the last time that I really enjoyed the series. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember who wrote that and I'm drawing a blank, but I'm going to look it up right now while you give us your thoughts, Rocky. Well, uh, what I like about this issue of Doom Patrol uh, is that is the focus on the psychologist whose acronym is Jerry. She's got uh, multiple personalities uh, and all her personalities are basically from their fifth dimensional entities that exist outside of space time. And that so because of that, she automatically already knows the deepest and darkest secrets of uh of the Doom Patrol. She knows their psychological uh, flaws, their maladies, and all those the mental hang-ups that they have. And what, uh, what the, the, the way in which that uh, plays out is that um, when, she, when she, she's, she's able to reach them in a way that I think is, she actually is probably one of the better comic book psychologists that I've ever seen that I've ever seen depicted in a comic before she actually Dennis Culver actually ends up giving up some pretty good sound psychological psychology advice to to all of them here he he could give a lot a lot more advice to uh uh I'm sorry there I he's keep picking up an echo here but uh, uh I hope it doesn't come through but in any event she uh he, Jerry gives good uh good advice to uh, degenerate uh, but degenerate doesn't want to talk and so uh, he's very frustrated and degenerate is one of the newer characters of the doom patrol uh, she gives great advice to uh, Rita Farr uh, Rita Farr feels guilty for having survived so much so she almost has survivor's guilt uh, which is uh, very interesting I, I wouldn't have I, I never thought of that Rita Farr as having survivor's guilt of having survived so much and she feels that maybe she's she's got one up on her other on her teammates and she feels guilty because she's managed to accomplish so much uh, Larry the negative man uh, denies uh, he's denied his negative self for too long and so he's looking for a purpose robot man is kind of a control freak and so he's looking for uh, – he's always wanting – he needs to let his friends in more and instead of trying to control their lives and protect them. And this new character, Corelli, has got a cruel father and, uh, and she's overcoming that. Meanwhile, we got fantastic art by um, – uh, ah, I didn't write down the artist's name. Uh, Is it uh, Laugh Laugh 
La Fiente, yeah. But th- there's multiple double-page spreads here. Every time that when there's a focus on degenerate, double-page spread. Rita Farr, double-page spread. And uh, Robotman, double-page spread. Corelli, double-page spread. Just some really great art and uh, just very well done. I suspect that this fourth issue was the issue that they added because this was originally six issues. It became seven issues. And I almost think that they threw in this fourth issue because to give us a psychological profile – of uh, of all the characters and uh, i thought it worked quite well yeah again i hope we get more because uh i think this is absolutely fantastic so uh we'll see uh and paul kupperberg was the one that wrote that 1987 um doom patrol series i can't believe i forgot that uh also wrote a lot of the vigilante series toward the end which i really loved so uh all right on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail uh danger street book number seven the creeper uh, is the subtitle. Tom King is the writer, Jorge Fornes on art, Dave Stewart on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, so give us your thoughts on this, Rocky. Bring it home. Uh, you mean, did you say Creeper? You mean Danger, Danger Street? Danger Street, but the title of the, oh. the issue is Creeper. <laughs> right, which I don't yeah. know why he doesn't even show up in this issue. So I'm not sure why this one's titled The Creeper. So. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Tom King has uh, – I really had to refresh my memory on this because there's been – there must have been a month and a half delay from this and the last I – I think this last issue, this is issue seven, issue six came out more than a month, certainly more than a month ago if I recall. Uh, but it, it took a while to, for me to refresh my memory. But um, so <laughs> – that once again, all these all these these obscure 1970s characters from uh, f- from DC's past are sort of they're all weaved into this plot here. And we have Lady Cop was waiting to speak to the Commodore uh, in this issue, and she's in the waiting room. And Commodore is one of the kid is one of the members of the Green Team, and he. Uh, he's trying to protect himself from being killed by uh, – he's trying to protect himself because uh, obviously uh, Manhunter's out there I think trying to – there's an assassin out there trying to kill him. And meanwhile, Manhunter is, is hunting down uh, the other member of the green team, Abdul Smith. And we have Warlord is in jail because Lady Cop arrested him and he was, uh, he was apprehended in jail. And he's and the Dingbat gang, the Dingbats of Danger Street, they they were uh, they captured Starman last issue and they formulated a plan to basically break Warlord out of prison because they want to break Warlord out of prison because they want to use Warlord, I think, to find Starman because they want to kill Starman for killing good looks. <laughs> Meanwhile, Darkseid and Grand the Grandmaster are really concerned because Apocalypse and New Genesis are going to be destroyed unless they be, uh, unless they somehow resurrect or find Atlas because Atlas was the god that was I think empowering up the planet of Apocalypse and New Genesis somehow I don't really understand how but that's what they're looking for and Orion is getting drunk in a bar because Orion. Uh, was defeated by Starman a couple issues ago, and Orion's job was to to find the body of Atlas and to bring it back, and I think somehow resurrect it, because Apocalypse talks about in this issue about somehow uh, about somehow 
using the energies of a god because the 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 fire pits of apocalypse uh, can only uh, maintain the energies for on apocalypse and genesis for so long because the energy between the two worlds is is um, it will slowly run out at least that's what I can infer from all this so all of this stuff is connected in some way and I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how, but it, you know, again, it, it, this is one of those things where we're smack dab in the middle of this story. And damn, if I'm not really curious to know how the, how the dingbats are going to break out Warlord and how at the end here we have Manhunter trying to kill, uh, uh, trying to kill uh, Abdul Smith, a member of the green team, and the outsiders show up and incapacitate the Manhunter on the beach where Abdul is, is, is hiding away on a beach somewhere and the, and the outsiders show up to incapacitate Manhunter. And, um, <laughs> again, uh, it, so again, we're, we're left. That's what, that's what we're left with. We're left. Jack Ryder ends up in the waiting room with lady cop. He speaks to the Commodore. And so Jack Ryder might at some point be teaming up with lady cop Meanwhile, we got Manhunter incapacitated by the Outsiders. We got Warlord in prison waiting to be broken out by the Dingbats. And Starman is uh, Starman is waiting outside the prison, I, I think, uh, potentially trying to waiting for the prison break to occur. And all this has to do with Darkseid and Grandfather and Again, lots of moving parts. This is a really tough comic book to try to summarize in a cohesive manner. I apologize. Maybe I'm sounding a little bit all over the place. But goddamn, this is actually a fun comic. And this is coming together. This is only issue seven. It's 12 issues long. Uh, for those that have stuck with it so far, this far, this is sort of like a, a slow addiction. I, I, I have to stick with it to, to figure out how it ends. And so, I don't know. Are you, uh, are you at wit's end yet or are you still with this story? No, I love it. I mean, we've talked about it throughout and it continues to be the case that you take these these characters who first showed up in, you know, first issue special and to weave a coherent story from these very seemingly disparate characters. You know, you got everything from Lady Cop, you know, just this just this woman who's a police officer as sort of mundane as you can get when it comes to a DC character and then you turn around and you have uh Dark Side. Like that's just so interesting to me, right? Like you're really running the gamut between uh, the power levels of the DCU. So yeah, I find it very interesting. I, I also find it interesting, like why why do the Dingbats not hold um, Warlord? They don't, he doesn't have any responsibility for the death of, of Good Looks at all. Like he was there as well. Um, so I find that to be kind of interesting that they don't, Apparently they, he gets a pass apparently on, uh, on D yeah. or on looks death. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting, pretty interesting. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for the issues that we're talking about in detail. There are a couple of other single issues that are coming out this week. Uh, we've got Looney Tunes number 273 and Batman and Scooby-Doo mysteries number 10. And when it comes to collections this week, uh, it looks like we have Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles omnibus hardcover. I think that's the James Tynan uh, series. DC Mech from the uh, Kenny Border that we talked about, the, his uh, Night Terrors uh, Robin issue. Uh, that's his series that collects issues one through six. I Am Batman, volume one. So that's the first of 
um, collection for the I Am Batman story. That's the John Ridley uh, written story that has uh, Jace Fox as uh, as Batman. And then finally, Suicide Squad Get Joker trade paperback, uh, which collects that Black Label series, uh, is out this week as well. So, uh, all right, Rocky, it's that time. Book of the week. Does anything stand out for you, head and shoulders above the rest? Or uh, yeah, what are your yeah, thoughts? I. I gotta go with uh, I gotta go with uh, Superman Lost. It was uh, it was the one that it just I just thought it resonated the most with me. I thought it was so well done. I thought the way Christopher Priest scripted it, and the way that he let he let the artist sort of tell the story of what Superman was going through. I thought it was just really masterful, and it really is the story is really coming into its own. And I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. And I was, you know, just like Black Adam ended on a high note. Uh, at least I really enjoyed his Black Adam run, despite some hiccups along the way. And Superman Lost has had hiccups along the way too. But man, when he nails it like he did this issue, I'm really hope, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this ends. And I actually think that this is the type of story that could have repercussions for the character in such a way moving forward into the DC, dawn of the DCU, that, I mean, wouldn't it be interesting that gives Superman the flaw of having some form of psychological hiccup because of this experience in Superman Lost? I think that's a way that you could still have the character be an exemplary character to look up to, but also have his own struggles as well, instead of being maybe a little bit too perfect sometimes. Yeah, DC would never do that. I don't disagree with you. I just don't see DC doing that. And the other thing is, you know, this idea of if he had a relationship with this girl, Hope, out there because he thought he wasn't going to get back home. You can understand it, right? Like, it's not so different um, than the story we got uh, in, I think it was in Tom King's Batman run where uh, Batman and Wonder Woman were trapped. Yeah. Uh, yeah and they but had- they never gave in a temptation, though. I mean, they, they almost kissed, but didn't, you know, yeah, not that we know. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah. And, and William Sharp's Batman Brave and the Bold kind of ex- explores that as well. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not a person who ships Batman and, uh, and Diana or Bruce and Diana. I'd rather, and I've said, I said this before when we had the Batman Zatanna team up in Batman Urban Legends, that's the relationship. I, I like Batman and Zatanna together uh, mm-hmm. better than I like, way better than I like Bruce and Selena and better than I like Constantine and, and Zatanna as well. Yeah. Cause it wants to be with Constantine, man. That guy's just a dick. Uh, so yeah. anyway, my book of the week, uh, I'm going to go with wildcats. Um, I've been enjoying it throughout. I know not every issue is for everybody cause it can be a political book. There are a lot of moving parts. It can be sort of tough. And again, you get a lot more context when you understand the history of the relationships. If you've gone back and you know read all that Wildstorm stuff from before they merged with DC, so I, I totally get that it can be kind of hard to follow. But when you get an issue like this, it's less so. It's less hard to follow, right? It, it just this is all out action. It's a lot of fun, and it works on that level. So for me, that's going to be my uh, my book of the week. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, don't forget make sure you're following us, uh, following the Comic Source on social media, Twitter, Instagram, what have you upcoming San Diego Comic-Con. If you're uh, listening to us audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel so you don't miss out on any of his content. Go back and look at past videos, reviews, and what have you. Uh, Ring the notification bell, subscribe. All that stuff helps us reach, uh, have access to more creators and 
more press previews and all that sort of stuff. So uh, if you are watching us on YouTube and you haven't subscribed to the comic source uh, for the other audio only content, just go to wherever you uh, get your podcast, do a search for the comic source and subscribe. We really appreciate it. I do have an interview coming up later this week with Rich Johnson. Uh, he is uh, a former uh, VP of sales at DC. He's written these really interesting guides to various comic book characters over the years. He's got one out for Captain America. He's got one out for Spider-Man. We specifically were talking about the Hulk. These guides are really great. They cover kind of the big eras of, of various characters, those characters that I mentioned, plus some ancillary characters for those characters. Um, you know, like, for instance, the Hulk talks about She-Hulk, talks about Abomination, some other characters such as that. Um, and then there's reference in the back. Hey, if you want to learn more about this era, go and read these uh these particular books. So look for that interview. Like I said, later this week, we appreciate the support as always. Uh, any last words, Rocky? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, enjoy the summer people out there. It's okay to avoid reading comics once in a while to enjoy the beautiful weather. Yeah, that is, unless you live in Phoenix where we're about to set a record for most days <laughs> over 110 degrees in a row. Yeah. Uh, so that's not exactly ideal, but anyway, thanks for joining us, everybody. As always, that's just one more reason I'm looking forward to heading to San Diego next week to get out of this heat. Uh, but yeah, we appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.